Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your word and to learn. And I pray that what we learn would not uh, cause us to doubt your word or to doubt you or to question your purposes in our lives, uh, but that we would be drawn to you. May your spirit draw us to you by what we see in your word. Would you pray that for yourselves now, that the Lord would draw you to himself through him as presented in the scripture. Father, I ask that uh, as we read of things about you that are uh, difficult to hear and that our flesh hates, I pray that your grace would abound even more. So I pray for your Holy Spirit to work among us to uh, warm our hearts towards you, that uh, that our vision of you would not be clouded by preconceived notions of you, but that we would see you clearly. Would you pray that the Lord would remove the blinders from our eyes so that we could see him clearly? Father, we love you. And we trust you. I pray that we would, in fact, trust you. I pray that you will do with this time as you will, for your glory, for the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, and I'll start reading in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Let him who has ears to hear, hear this morning. We've been looking at running our race, running the race that is set before us, our race together that is for us together as the family of God, not your individual race that you want to run, not your individual career path or life plan or life goals, the race, the one singular race that is set before all Christians to run in the likeness of Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, we've been told to get ready for this running. And even as we run, we need to do things that help us continue in the race. And those include laying aside weights and sin that so easily beset or entangle us. And the central idea of verses 1 through 3, we spent several weeks talking about it, is the idea of looking to Jesus. Looking straight at Him with the eyes of your heart. And only by doing so are we able to have the motivation and the will and the wisdom to lay aside the weights and the sin. And only by looking to Him with that clear vision of Him are we able to endure and to run this race that is set before us with endurance. And so now we come to verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And this feels like, to me at first glance, a jarring transition. At first glance, it seems a little bit out of place because what we've been talking about so far is laying aside sin and weights so that you can run this race. So we're supposed to get sin out of the picture, uh, be done with sin, as it were, stop piddling around with sin and run the race. And now he's talking about a struggle against sin that might even cost you your life. And the point is, I think, that it's not a simple race that we're running where everyone is respectable and stays in their lane and doesn't pull any dirty tricks. This race we are supposed to run in pursuit of Jesus, seeking Him to gain Him as our prize, is also a struggle. So the shift in the analogy is is away from the idea of a race as we follow our forerunner, Jesus, who has already finished the race before us. And the, the analogy now shifts to this idea of enduring hostility, a struggle, a, a, a fight in some ways. So what is this struggle against sin that he's talking about? The specific word for struggle is the only place in the New Testament that it's used. And that's actually common in Hebrews. He uses several words that they're the only place that it's used. But interestingly, if if we look back at uh, chapter 10, verse 32, and you can just turn there. Depending on the English translation you have, it's still translated struggle. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Even though that's the same English word as we find in Hebrews 12.4, it's not the same Greek word. That word in chapter 10, verse 32, has the idea of, of athleticism. It's where we get the same term, athlesis. It's, it's the idea of, of a struggle, a hard struggle with some type of competition or game at, at stake. It's a, it's a difficult uh, competition that we're in, so to speak. But the flavor of the word in chapter 12, verse 4, this struggle has no 
allusions to games or sports at all. It's the idea of combat. And even if the word athlesis could mean something like the gladiatorial games, where you could lose your life, that's not the flavor of the struggle that we see in verse 4 here. In your struggle against sin, it is simply a fight. And it carries the sense of real combat. And it's the word that is used here is where we get the word antagonize. There's real hostility. There's real opposition. There's no sportsmanship. There's no good game that you say after you win or lose. This is war. So the reason he's intensifying the imagery is because what we have with sin should not be a game. Not a competition. Not even like the gladiatorial games where you can lose and die with honor. It's war. So I must ask you, even if, as I ask myself, are you playing games with sin? Which describes your life and your relationship to sin? Is it a game? Is it a sport? You can put a lot of effort into it, but if you lose, better luck next year, right? Is that what your struggle against sin is like? Is that how serious you take it or don't take it? Or is it in your heart real war? An intense, antagonistic, high-stakes battle for your very soul. And I must not be defeated. I will scrape and claw and do whatever it takes. Defeat is not honorable nor acceptable. Is that your attitude towards your sin? How do you know if you've come to this point of fighting the right way against your sin? Is it perfection? No. We all stumble in many ways. Rather, it is Hatred. Hatred of sin. Thomas Brooks commenting on Psalm 119.104 where the psalmist says, I hate every false way. Brooks says this, that the language signifies to hate with a deadly and irreconcilable hatred. The psalmist will combat with all sin, though he cannot conquer one as he should and as he desires. He knows that All sin strikes at God's holiness as well as his own happiness. At God's glory as well as his own soul's comfort and peace. Do you hate every false way? Do you hate your sin with a pure, irreconcilable hatred? Do you hate your sin more than the darkness or sin in the world out there? Which bothers you more? Which causes you to lose sleep at night more? Which causes you to angst more in your soul? Is it the sin out there and other people as the world goes to hell in a handbasket? Or is it the sin here? Are you playing games with your sin? 
Are you playing games with the things that lead you to sin? Stop playing games. Commit to hatred and antagonism, aggression, and yes, even violence against all that is in your own heart that is sinful. And you should have a willingness even to shed your own blood. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Consider Christ's sufferings against sinners, not his own sin. But he did so to the point of shedding his own blood. The idea is that if you're still alive, this is kind of what the author is saying, if you're still alive to hear me say this to you, then you've not yet died in this fight against sin. Therefore, you still have more to give, more resources to commit to the fight. You've not yet died. You can give more to this battle against sin, this war. Preaching about sin is not popular. And there are books sitting on the Christian, sitting in the Christian sections of book stores and even taught in many seminaries and books revered by many guys with PhDs that tell preachers and teachers not to do what I'm doing right now. If you really want to reach your city or town, they say, then you can't really preach about and confront sin very harshly at all. We don't have time to comment on all the ways that that is just so wrong. But I want you to consider the most serious thing that happens when we don't model our lives after this fight against sin, this war against sin. And it is this, that Jesus seems more and more distant from us. Not only because his sin, our sin clouds our view of him and makes it impossible to get into stride, but because your life begins to look less and less and less like Jesus' life. His whole life was one trial, one long drawn out temptation, hostility against sinners, his whole life. Even shedding his blood in the final act of antagonistic victory over sin. Not his own sin but others' sin. Are you playing games with what cost Jesus his life to put to death? When we do this, our life looks less and less like his, and we feel more and more distant from Jesus, and sin has more and more victory over us in our lives, and we start to despise or to regard lightly His sufferings for sin, and we begin to grieve the Spirit over and over, and eventually we start preferring our sin more and more over our union with Christ. Then all the warnings of not being able to restore such a one to repentance that are in the book of Hebrews start to apply to us. Some of you may need to today, I can't see into your heart, but some of you may need to today stop playing the game of making peace with your sin. And you need to re 
claim the territory that you have yielded to it and you need to break all treaties that you have made with it and declare war again. The author of Hebrews will say in just a few short verses, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then we get another jarring transition, perhaps. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What are we talking about now? How are these ideas connected? In this race, in this battle, uh, this, this war, there's a very real possibility that we will become weary or faint-hearted. And the point of the exhortation in, in, in verse 3 is so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And the author is now pointing us to one of the most encouraging truths to build your life upon. As you draw up your battle plans against sin, as you figure out how you're going to wage the good warfare against the flesh, this is the truth you need to know. This should be the foundation of your hearts. And you need to run with it before your eyes. Don't forget that you're a son. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And in this, I think there's a subtle rebuke uh, for knowing our Bibles really well. He hinges all of this on one word that occurs in Proverbs. This is from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. This is how the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews renders it. My son, so this is the author, of he, uh, the author of Proverbs, likely Solomon speaking to his own son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Just as an aside, the light that even one or two words in Scripture can shine onto your situation will enable you to find your way out of every dreary darkness you will find yourself in, brothers and sisters. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. What is this exhortation that addresses us as sons? How can we grow in our confidence in our sonship or daughtership, as it were? The ideas are interchangeable. It's not that there are only guys that this applies to. Sons and daughters is an over, uh, overlapping term in, in Hebrew and Greek thought. The, the, the exhortation is to not to despise, that we would not despise or regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So we have Jesus and Esau last week. Jesus despises the shame, and Esau, as we remember from Genesis, despises his birthright. And in the middle of those, we're told not to despise something. Don't despise, don't regard lightly the Lord's discipline. Don't disdain it, is the flavor of this word. Just a point of clarification, this discipline is not the same as the struggle or the war against sin. 
This war against sin, that's kind of the overarching category for this message, is something that you must actively engage in. You must set yourself to actively engage in this war against sin. The discipline that comes from the Lord, if you're a son or daughter, is something that happens whether you want it or like it or not. So they're two different things. But one prepares you for the other. The discipline of the Lord helps you fight the war against sin in your own heart. That's how they're related. So what is discipline? First, let me say very clearly, the discipline of the Lord is not punishment. If you never hear me say another thing again, Understand that, that what the Lord has for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, if He is your Lord, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is not punishment. If there is one moment of your life that you can speak of as punishment from God, then Christ's death was not enough. It's not punishment. Whenever I hear someone say something like, I think God may be punishing me, or I just feel like God is punishing me, I want to pull out my hair and throw Bible verses at that person. Because it's not true if you're in Christ. The cross matters every day. You're not under punishment. You're, there is, there, there's no wrath. There's none. So understand your suffering in the light of that, that it is discipline, not Punishment. Further, it is not karma. I got angry with my wife, said things that were hurtful, so now I have a flat tire. And believe it or not, we make those connections more often than you think. I did this or that, and now I'm experiencing this. God is, God is the one who's connecting these things together. We'll spend a whole lot of time addressing this, but just know that that's really silly and it's really dangerous because you're putting words and motives into the mouth and heart of God. You don't know why something is happening. You know that it is discipline, but you cannot make those connections. It's very dangerous to do so, and you'll, you'll see some of the reasons in a, blit, in a bit. But the main one is this. Discipline is more about your future and destiny than it is your past. Think about that. It has more to do with your future victory in Christ than it does about any of your past victories or failures. You can, in Christ, through repentance and forgiveness, truly forget everything that lies behind. It's amazing. So it's not punishment, it is not karma, rather it is correction or training. It is the difficulties, trials, challenges, weaknesses, unpleasantries brought and ordained to produce more maturity, more hope, more trust, and more joy in our hearts. It is training. So it it is forward-looking. It is preparing us for something. Those of you who have played a sport or done anything that requires bodily strength, you know what training means. And you know that 
There's nothing really pleasant about tearing down your muscles repeatedly or taking your lungs and your heart to the brink repeatedly. There's nothing inherently pleasant about that. And there is certainly nothing pleasant about the stretches. Okay, And this is why the author says later, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. If it's not unpleasant, it's not discipline. But let's make sure we, we not just have the idea of getting ready to compete in a game again. This isn't like training for, for a, a, a match or, or a football game. We're being prepared for this fight, this war. The psalmist says in Psalm 144, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That's what the Lord is doing in His disciplining of you. He is training you for battle, for war. The discipline of the Lord is so much less like two-a-day practices for varsity football and so much more like Hell Week, which is the pinnacle of training for the special forces group known as Navy SEALs. And But the enemy is not insurgents or global crime syndicates. And what you need is not the ability to swim for miles or to run for ages or to use every weapon known to man. Rather, the enemy is sin in your own heart. The old man, the former you, the deeds of the flesh. And you must be, you must be strong in faith, mighty in prayer, fervent in spirit, a lion with the Scriptures, wise as serpents, yet as gentle as doves with others. You must be all of it to wage this good warfare against the sin in your own lives. And this is what the discipline of the Lord, the training of the Lord, is meant to make you into. What a glory you and I can be even now, brothers and sisters, trained and prepared with the discipline of the Lord that way. Men who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. But how could we despise it? The exhortation is, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. There are so many ways that we could despise the discipline of the Lord. I I will limit it to four. Four ways that I think we can despise the discipline of the Lord. The first is to reject God's involvement in it. That we don't see His hand and His providence behind the unpleasantness that is in our lives that is discipline. We reject that God could even be involved in it at all. Do you remember the Jews when they were freaking out that Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came all the way up to the gate? Praying against him, offering sacrifices, doing whatever they could, uh, getting ready and uh, strengthening the walls and getting the armies ready. And God says, and you didn't even think to turn to me who brought him to your door. I brought him there because of your sin, 
Because of your wickedness and your idolatry, I brought Nebuchadnezzar there to discipline you. And you're not turning to me. You don't even see that my hands are in it. And we do the same things. Jesus even says to one of the churches in the seven letters, Satan is about to throw some of you into prison. But what does he say to them? Be faithful unto death. You don't think God could stop the enemy or Nebuchadnezzar or any of the contemporary forces of evil in our day? The pandemic, it's discipline. And it concerns me deeply that there are not many pronounced voices in the Christian community speaking of what's going on in that way. And we are despising the discipline of the Lord. The second way we can despise the discipline of the Lord is to reject God's purposes in it. That description that I gave you of God training your hands for war and your fingers for battle against the old man and your old self, what were your feelings and thoughts as I was explaining that? Do you want it? Do you want the same things out of your sufferings and trials that God wants? Sometimes the furthest we get, the best we can do is to just pray for God to remove the discipline. And rarely ever do we get to the place where we're welcoming His training so that we can be better equipped to wage war against sin in our own lives. We reject His purposes in the discipline. Number three, we reject our responsibility in the discipline. Discipline is not only passive. Yes, God disciplines every son whom he loves and chastises every son he receives. So whether you want it or not, like it or not, God is disciplining you if you're a son or daughter. But that doesn't mean you just sit there and do nothing. You have to apply yourselves with the proper perception of his actions. This is part of what it means to renew the mind. That as you think about your life and your circumstances differently through the promises of God and the providences of God in your lives to train your hands for war, it takes faith and it takes a renewing of your mind to see it that way. So don't just sit and receive it and be passive. Don't reject your responsibility in it. And lastly, we reject our need for it. I'm already a Christian. Jesus has forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future. Why do I need to be trained and prepared in this struggle against sin? This doesn't sound fun. I have a seminary degree. I've served in ministry. I've met a lot of mature Christians. I've served the Lord all my life. I've been saved for longer than you've been alive. Longer than I can remember. Why do I need to be trained for battle? Why do I need the discipline of the Lord? Remember the audience? The author of Hebrews? These are people 
He, he reminds them in chapter 10, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own possessions because you knew that you had a greater inheritance, an abiding one. These are people who believed in Jesus and endured great suffering and had their stuff taken away and they were happy in it. They were rejoicing in the Lord. And the author tells them, don't despise the discipline of the Lord when it comes. I don't know if I possess the spiritual maturity of heart to in those moments rejoice that all my stuff got taken away for the sake of the name of Jesus. And yet he says to these people, more is coming and don't despise it when it comes. No matter how mature you are, there are no laurels or trophies to rest on in the family of God until we arrive in glory. And until then, you must stay on your guard. You must stay awake and exhort one another every day so that none of you, including the most mature among you, will be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. It can happen. And he says, nor be weary when reproved by him. We won't spend as much time here as we did before because the nature of a proverb is, is that it, set up, it sets up mirrors. It says one thing and then it says it essentially the same way but with different words. And this is the mirror statement. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we say that ten times fast, nor be weary when reproved by him. The point of this side of the mirror is that this is the very kind of thing that can cause weariness of soul, the discipline of the Lord. Or is that just me? But only by understanding God's motivation and His purposes in it will we be able to avoid the weariness of soul and heart that might undo us. So what is reproof? The idea carries the flavor of finding fault or to, to refute. It's sort of like what Jesus says in the letters to the seven churches, but I have this against you. Reproof, uh, rebuke uh, of, of God is part of the point of having your Bible. This, this is a very word-driven idea. Reproof is something that someone would say to you. They were to address you and exhort you to change your behavior. They're reproving you. They're refuting you, rebuking you. And that is why you have your Bible. And that is why, part of why, you have a preacher Think of this, and this is all under the umbrella of the reproof of the Lord. Don't grow weary when reproved by Him. If preaching does its job, and if you're really listening, your flesh will hate it. Think of that. If preaching does its job, and you're really listening, your flesh, the old man the very thing you're supposed to wage war against, will hate it. It cuts between bone and marrow, spirit and soul, sharp. And the enemy will do everything he can 
from the distractions on our devices to our desire for fellowship to make you listen to your flesh and not listen to the reproof of the Lord. Are you preparing for Sunday morning with that in view? That in this moment, you will have to fight the battle against the flesh and the devil as you hear the reproof of the Lord. Don't grow weary when reproved by Him. The idea is if we're not ready and if we're not thinking of it the right way, it will cause weariness. We'll sit and watch a movie for hours, but the Word, flesh hates it. The enemy hates it. To do good for your soul is something the entire world system and all the principalities and the powers of the air does not want to happen. But don't be discouraged. When you feel your heart, for whatever reason, however that manifests for you, not wanting to endure the reproof of the Lord, see that as confirmation that all of this is true. Why else would that happen? If this is a false teaching, if we're just atoms scattered about in the universe, stardust, why would our flesh war against hearing the word of God? Unless it's true. So don't grow weary. How? How can we prevent ourselves from growing weary? He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is how we avoid growing weary and how we simultaneously build our assurance that we are, in fact, sons, daughters of God. And we'll discuss that more next week. We're only going to get to verse 7 this week. But there's an interrelationship between discipline and love. God's fatherly love is made loud and clear when He disciplines you. That's what it's saying. He disciplines the one He loves. Without exception for the ones He loves. Think of Christ. He learned obedience through what He suffered. This is love. And this is proof of His love. And your sonship, daughtership, to be disciplined by Him. After hearing all this, are you tempted to feel that the Lord God is a harsh father? We just sang a song that celebrated that there was no bitterness or harshness from God. Do you feel that way after hearing that God disciplines everyone He loves? To see your trials in your life as in some mysterious way in His providence and His wisdom interfacing with your life to produce strength and to train your hands for war so that you would wage war against the flesh? Does that seem harsh? Consider this. If we truly saw the filth and disastrous nature of sin, if we saw its horror, because we tend to be more extreme and lack patience and mercy, we would be more severe towards us, towards ourselves, than God is in His discipline. 
if we really saw the danger, the filth, the horror of sin. We would not think that even the valley of the shadow of death was too severe to get rid of that which still indwells. We can trust, brothers and sisters, that even in our most difficult and dark trials, God is being patient and merciful in His disciplining providence and that He is not being overly severe, but He is being a good surgeon with just the right amount of pressure and cutting to save us. And here is the point. As we become more aware of His love in our discipline, it gives us, produces in us, more endurance. That's the exhortation. He disciplines the one He loves. So know that you're being loved when He disciplines you and that gives you endurance to fight this fight and to run this race. But what about this word chastises? It says, and he chastises every son whom he receives. He says, every son. So our our security, our confidence that we are sons of God is connected very closely, at least in this text, with this idea of chastisement from the Lord. Discipline, reproof, chastisement. He's building terms on top of each other to give us the sense of how God deals with the ones He loves. And so when you receive that, when you experience that, you can know that God is loving you. He cares for you. He's not just letting you run after the thing that cost Him His Son's life. He's giving us full combat training so that our hands are trained for war against the flesh. But let's, let's look at this word, chastise. This is uncomfortable, but it would be malpractice for me not to say this. It's obviously being used metaphorically, but this is the word for scourging. Some older English translations actually just translate it straight. He scourgeth the ones he receives. Often when you look up a Greek word in a lexicon or a dictionary, it has a range of meanings, multiple different entries of what it could mean. Not this one. It just simply means to scourge. And yes, it's the same word used to speak of Jesus' scourging that he received. God, I mean, this is a direct translation. God scourges every son or daughter he receives. And no, the vast majority of those who are born again and adopted by God will not be literally scourged, although many in the persecuted church are. But this means that he is disciplining us, not in a metaphysical sense or merely emotional sense. It will be and must be unpleasant or it's not discipline and it will not have its intended effect and I understand that this is heavy but it is the text just like training for real war think of it when our soldiers are training for real war the majority of it is unpleasant 
And it is often very unpleasant. So what do we do with this? Such a God who scourges every son or daughter he receives is completely unacceptable to the world. It is so offensive to speak of him that to do so is to turn many away. There's not a lot of songs that even the church sings about discipline. But it is part of the most beloved psalm. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. When you realize the the cry of the heart of those who who value and love the fact that we are part of the sheepfold of God, that God uses His loving staff and rod to discipline us. So how can we think and live in view of this? It's a heavy burden. But we must not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It is for discipline, the author continues, it is for discipline that you... Have to endure. One of the commentaries I was reading translates it this way You must endure your trials as divine discipline. The NIV renders it this way. I think this is actually really good. Endure hardship as discipline. So you've got your hardship in your life over here, and you're thinking about it, and you're enduring it. And he says, Endure it as discipline. Think of it, go through it, because you can't, in most cases, avoid it. Endure it as discipline. Think of it, behold it as God's discipline at work in your life. View the trials and hardships that way. If you do, perhaps the Lord won't have to amp up the trials in your lives to get you to listen. If you view your trials as discipline. You only got three hours of sleep? Instead of self-pity and anger, endure it as discipline and training for waging the good warfare against sin. You have pain? Instead of blaming the fallenness of the world, understanding that God could liberate you immediately from your pain, if it were truly good for you. And understand that He is training you to hate sin more than you ever have. You've got rebellious children. Don't blame the world or their environment. Realize he is giving you a front row seat to the heartbreak that he experiences when we sin against him. And in viewing that, let it drive you to repentance and brokenness. And by so doing, you will be much more well equipped to win your children back from their wandering. And we could go on and on with examples of how to view the trials you're enduring as discipline, but alas, for time. I'll trust the Holy Spirit to show you how to reevaluate your trials as discipline. God is treating you as sons, he continues. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Again, the idea here is assurance, and we're going to talk quite a bit about that next week. The formula is this, though. The right mindset about discipline plus enduring trials equals assurance of sonship. That's how it works. If you view it rightly, if you endure it through that viewing it rightly, then you will grow in your assurance of sonship. 
My concern is that many of us are so against the idea of seeing God at work in the sufferings we have that we just won't have any of the assurance producing benefit in our hearts. So, two clarifications to prevent this hard heart towards God. One, you were never meant to suffer your discipline alone. In many cases, we would pray that God would remove it, just like Paul with his thorn, whatever it was. Please remove it. Three times I prayed. But we were never meant to endure the discipline God brings into our lives alone. And here's the great thing. And I want you to see the mercy and wisdom of God, of God at work in this. That as you share the discipline that you may be under, the trials that you must endure with your brothers and sisters, it will lessen the difficulty, yet increase the benefit in your life. It's the only thing in the world that does that. It's a miracle that your suffering, your endurance of the trials will be lessened as you share it, but the good it will produce, your ability to wage the good warfare will only increase. And secondly, because of sin, all of us will die and all of us will suffer and all of us deserve hell. That's the curse and that is justice. So it is not God making things more difficult than they ought to be or should be. Or would be otherwise. God is taking and making every trial in your life that you would otherwise experience anyway. And worse, because of our own sin. And he is making it produce in you a readiness and willingness and skill to wage the good warfare against sin in your life. That's what he's doing through his discipline. Endure it all as discipline. That requires a direct act of faith to view your life directly through God's providence. And the question at the end is rhetorical for the author. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's rhetorical for the author in his time, but sadly it's not so much in our time. And that sets the stage for next week. Just a few points of application and we'll be done. As I mentioned earlier, we must view the trials of our times as discipline. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord, brothers and sisters. And what Jesus is doing currently, this is what we talked about last Easter, that he is walking among the lampstands of his church, encouraging, but also rebuking and disciplining and even threatening for the sake of their holiness. We must view the times this way. Secondly, I have to say something about parenting God and discipline. Part of the difficulty of ministry is that I always have to help people who are a few stages ahead of me in my life. Beth and I are the youngest parents here. But I have to speak the scriptures to you too even though many of you are more experienced in parenting than I am. So I'll only say this. Some of you may be inadvertently preaching blasphemy about God to your children in your lack of discipline of them. Not talking about method. 
And we'll clarify some of this next week. But does your discipline of your children look anything like the loving discipline of God for His children, as we've just described? If not, you're giving them a false view of love. You are damaging their souls and turning them away from the love of God. And making it that much more difficult for them to understand His fatherly love and even the cross itself. And I know your kids probably want me to shut up right now about this. But I'll leave you with this. No ministry of the church, no conference, no program can even hold a candle to the power that you wield when you follow God's example of His disciplining of His children in the way you lead your family. Number three. It's one thing to believe all this in theory about the discipline of the Lord and how we need to view our trials, but I'm going to say amen in just a few minutes after the benediction, and then in 15 seconds or 15 minutes, you're going to encounter a new trial or be reminded of all the trials that you're currently dealing with. That's when the rubber hits the road. And the summons of the life of faith is to endure every trial as some form of discipline for your good. I wish I had time to read the first answer of the Heidelberg Confession, but the central piece is that nothing can happen in my life apart from God's loving care of me. That everything that happens is through that grid of His love. So a question to ask, even after the service of one another, as you share the discipline of the Lord, the trials He's asking you to endure right now, what sort of discipline has the Lord given you to bear this week? You can use other words. What trials are you enduring that have carried over from last week, and how can I help you with them? You might just be able to pray or encourage them or whatever, but you might actually be able to do real tangible things. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And lastly... To view your life this way really does require deep, deep faith. Deep trust that God is good, that you can trust His words. And if you just find this very, very hard to bear, very hard to hear, very hard to see God scourging His children, then just look again at older brother. Your brain will not let you question whether or not Jesus knew and believed and felt the love of God. Your brain won't let you read of Him and question whether or not the Father loves Him. And yet, look at His life. Consider Him who endured such hostility against sinners. That's the exhortation here. Look again to older brother. We are so tempted and quick to question His love. We stub our toe and we question if God loves us. Jesus went to the cross. Father, forgive them. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Look at Him. Take your eyes off yourself and navel-gazing, and look to His life and see your life in the terms of His. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your discipline. Give us the strength of Spirit whereby we can truthfully say that.
Help us understand its role in building our assurance. Help us take sin seriously enough in our lives where we don't play games anymore, but we wage war. It's only by your grace and your strength that we can do so. But help us not despise the grace that you've already given us. You have given us everything we need for life and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.